millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield and this is is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Here we are at episode 123, and I'm sad to say that Art Below's Art in the Age of Now at Fulham Town Hall has only gone and shut its doors for the final time. Sad to see it shut, but great to be a part of it. But one door closes, another one opens, insofar as, as from today, when this podcast is released on Monday the 21st of June, the Kensington and Chelsea Art Week, stroke Art Festival, opens their doors. And I said Stroke Art Festival because this year the Kensington and Chelsea Art Week is expanding throughout the summer season with a festival that elevates the magic and shared experiences of public art and live performance. And that will be running until August the 31st. And if you're a regular listener, you'd have already heard me speak about the Kensington and Chelsea Art Week with three other of their participating artists, namely Fiona Grady, Orlando Bloom, and just a couple of weeks ago, Louise Hall. Which brings us to this week's guest, Graphic Rewilding, or at least one of its founders, Lee Baker. But before I tell you more about Lee and Graphic Rewilding, I need to thank our Patreon supporters, because without their support, this podcast would not be possible. And although this content is free for everyone, if you would like to support us, you can do it from as little as £3 a week by following the link in the Ministry of Arts Instagram page. Just scroll down and look for Patreon support. 
or likewise you can go to www.patreon forward slash ministry of arts but anyway back to episode number 123 with lee baker from graphic rewilding so lee baker like katherine borowski in episode 104 is one half of baker and borowski which has given us among other things the skip gallery and their graphic rewilding in baker and borowski's own words the goal of graphic rewilding is to introduce a diversity in colours of nature into urban environments. Through large-scale artworks, they hope to inspire and encourage people to connect with nature, and reimagine feels poignant within this context. Removing these flowers from a natural context, the glorious shapes and colours of the flower heads with all context absent provides a complex, non-concrete energy. With one foot in abstract minimalism, the other in still life. I've not met Lee prior to this conversation, but like so many of the artists that I speak to, it feels like I'd known them for years after about five minutes. And just like Graphic Rewilding itself, Lee Baker is colourful, larger than life and just oozing personality. So please, come and join me over Zoom when I spoke to Lee Baker of Graphic Rewilding. But I used to be really into cars, like, you know, that's... I mean, nice segue actually, because it kind of, I suppose that's kind of, yeah, what kind of my first proper foray into art really. But, um, but you know, that's, that's a whole other story. Well, let's start with that. What was your first <laughs> foray into, into the art world? Or rather, how would you explain what you do to someone that doesn't know your work? Oh, Jesus. <clears throat> I'm an extremely eclectic mercurial artist yeah. who changes his mind all the time nice but certain things have followed me throughout my life and i keep on coming back to them um and i essentially ostensibly i'm a painter yeah but i've experimented with pretty much every mm -hmm. form of art that has taken my fancy from performance art to installation to um uh yeah straightforward painting silkscreen printing everything i've tried a digital art I've, I've tried absolutely everything but i always come back to painting nice um i just have a inherent fascination with uh brush marks and mainly mainly the, the i'd love to write a book one day called the history of the black line oh yeah nice yeah just because it's followed me throughout my life and it seems to kind of punctuate everything and when you look throughout history, the black line has followed art throughout. Yeah. So from Japanese calligraphy to hieroglyphics to anime to, um, you know, even, even to the Renaissance, uh, you know, uh, the, the black line is there. Anyway, there you go. That's a, that's a fair old answer. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if it made anything clearer <laughs> whatsoever, really. Did you always have um, art growing up in your in your home? Yeah. So my mum, my mum, even though I didn't know it, and I don't, I'm not even sure she did actually, but we had art up on the walls. My dad was a big fan of um, Norman Rockwell. Oh yeah. But also David Oxterby as well. So so he was properly into rock and roll. My dad. He was a. We were in a band together um, nice. when I was a teenager. A rock and roll band. So I was like 15 and into heavy metal, sitting there like this. Mm. <laughs> oh, I hate this. But, you know, we'd be playing all the pubs and clubs in London. 
Nice. And he was banging to rock and roll. He used to go to Cook's Cleat, this old club in London, and watch all the up-and-coming bands um, back in the 50s and 60s. So he was really into that. So David Oxterby used to paint all the rockers. Yeah. And we'd have paintings of uh, the, all the prints of that. And then Norman Rockwell. So he was into more populist pop art. My mum, she had... Like, and again, I didn't know this at the time. You kind of, it's just there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. She had a beautiful Jura, you know that Jura drawing of the hands praying? Yeah, 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 yeah. She had that on the wall and then she had a set of Picasso prints, um, but very abstract prints of the bullfights. And my head's going round our house, like uh, up and down the yeah, stairs, I can yeah. see them. Excellent. Um, there, was, um, uh, there was a Picasso painting, very, very obscure when I think about it, of, of a mother and child, but in a kind of, in a green and and i just remember yeah over the years starting to realize what these paintings were nice there's a monet a monet snow scene which <laughs> i copied for a school competition oh, told everyone it was mine <laughs> and, uh, and and i won the competition Excellent. and and i <laughs> out even then so i used to be really good at copying man i yeah. mean I properly, properly could have been and should have been a forger. Excellent. I always said I just didn't have the criminal connection. <laughs> I can sort you out there if you're still good at copying. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was started. <laughs> yeah. This bit was left out of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. This is where it went downhill yeah. for both of our lives. <laughs> hey, honestly, I've read every book there's going on forgeries. Brilliant. I had David Henty on a few months ago, who was um, a forger. That was oh, a, wow. that was an interesting episode. Yeah, it was funny. He, um, we were sitting here like this, and where you've got your painting behind you there, he had um, Da Vinci's um, painting of Christ. It was like four hundred and fifty million sat behind him, and he's <laughs> and he's turned his screen around to show me the room he's sitting in, and there was two Banksy spin paintings. There was oh, brilliant. There was like you know a Renoir. There was, I can't even remember which ones were there, but oh, there was probably funny. if they was real, there was probably about a billion and a half yeah, yeah. paintings in his front brilliant. room. You know, brilliant. It's how I learned. You know, even when I remember, even when I was. Uh, young five six I remember like when they'd say what did you do at the weekend draw what you did at the weekend on a Monday I'd take in comics Brilliant. and I'd copy the comics I have the cop the, the comic on my lap under the table and I think it came out of insecurity really I, I, I didn't actually believe that I was any good yeah I believed I was kind of only good if I was emulating something else and I you know when do you learn about postmodernism? I didn't even know it existed, no. but as I grew up, I constantly copied. So my cars that I did were Marvel comics, all my favorite Marvel comics. Um, I grew up with, um, uh, do you remember, my mum used to come home, a friend of hers used to work in a doctor's, doctor's um, surgery. And my mum, obviously when you're young, you don't know what's, what's the right thing to read or the right yeah, thing to yeah, do. Yeah. She'd come home with Bunty comics, <laughs> piles of them, like this. Yeah. Piles of Bunty comics. I reckon it's why I'm so metrosexual now. Because yeah, like, yeah. even back then, I'd have Marvel and DC, so I'd be reading Batman and whatever. But on the other hand, on the other side, I'd be taking the cutting out those back pages of Bunty and dressing the girls in Brilliant. those in those kind of fold back things. Yeah. And even then, I was copying those... Um, copying those loads 
then I've moved on to, I got really into heavy metal in the eighties and um, kind of my dad, my dad had a proper kind of the who and Jimi Hendrix and nice. all that. So I really got into heavy music through him whilst also being into get Barry Manilow and, and Elton Brooks through my mind. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. It's where the eclecticism comes in. Yeah. And then, and then used to copy the album covers. So I used to copy all my mates would want their rough books at school. Yeah. Their, a heavy metal album cover, so I'd copy Iron Maiden was the good one. Is it Derek Riggs? Is that the guy? Oh, I wouldn't he used, know. I uh, used to paint all those like properly yeah. gruesome, yeah, 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 you know, album covers, you know, Eddie apocalyptic, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Or you know, but they were amazing, they were yeah. like, so detailed, and to just kind of fully get lost in them, you know, and obviously. I mean, it's so funny because when I was at school, I had no idea about sexism and sexism in art and stuff but it was all naked women it was oh, of course all, yeah. like you yeah. know scantily clad um boris vallejo paintings and um all those kind of you know woman being saved by a man oh, of course yeah by a monster and oh look her boobs hanging out you know that kind of thing. <laughs> and i used to copy those and then i started doing my own stuff do you remember athena posters yeah of course yeah, yeah. i used to draw off the athena posters and then and then like when it came to going to foundation course, that was an absolute eye opener because basically they said, oh, display all your work. You know? <laughs> so I put this work up and oh my God, my work got completely vandalized by the feminists in, wow. the, in the art school. And I was just like, what the fuck, you know? And it wasn't, yeah. I wasn't, it was, I remember being like, whoa, oh God, who's done this to my work? And then when someone explained it to me, I kind of, it was a real eye opener actually. Yeah, so so that's kind of where where that started and foundation course when I started becoming kind of more aware of um, the art world. A friend, I, I met my, who is still my best friend at foundation course, and Brilliant. he had been gone to like private school and they'd had a proper proper art education. Wow! That he turned up with all these Giacometti drawings and his life drawings were just off the hook. You know, they were just like astounding. I was yeah. like, what the fuck have I walked into? <laughs> <laughs> and, and from him, I kind of blame him really, because I went from wanting to do, you know, working, like working film in prosthetics or working like doing album covers or doing that kind of, you yeah. know, that Roger Dean world of fantasy art to discovering the world of fine art, Brilliant. you know, and the Brilliant. history of the Renaissance and the, you know, you and you glow, I think became a real hero for me back then of mixing color and really getting immersed into that world of life paintings where you're really examining the relationships in, with between colours. Yeah. Before then, colour for me was like... You Whatever know, was in Bunty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. Whatever whatever, uh, whatever um, Derek Riggs used to <laughs> illustrate the blood coming out yeah. of someone's neck, you know. But that's, that's the great thing. When someone opens a door to you and you see what's beyond your own little world that you've created, you know, because mm. you, you're sort of so innocent in art if, if you like, you know, you you only go as far as your arm can reach in the art world when when you're on your own. And then when you meet someone like that who opens up doors for you, you know, you, you go, fucking hell, you know, there is, um, there's more to this world, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it definitely opened up. I did, I did curse it for years because I, I always thought, 
why have I walked into this nebulous, <laughs> kind of depressing, anxiety-riddled kind of environment that I've drawn myself into through being bezies with this guy and then ended up, you know, we both, he went up to Edinburgh, I went up to Newcastle and then he hated Edinburgh and moved down to Newcastle with me and we were brilliant. at Newcastle. It was a brilliant time, but I remember there was a period of my life where I was like, why the fuck did I do this? Why the fuck did I? Basically, I, you only get one life and I've fucked it, yeah. you know, by not going into the film industry, by not going into something that felt more natural to me, which was, yeah. I suppose, a more illustrative kind of word. Yeah, yeah. But over time, I've really, really kind of, I think, discovered that learning fine art or learning art has given me, you know, now I feel like it's given me such a broad oh, definitely. outlook on the world and an, an ability to be able to adapt to any anything. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and yeah. I mean, you're saying there about um, you wish you went into like a, a safer industry than than fine art. Are you the sort of character that, you know, looks at two roads in front of you and decides to take the, the more rocky road? Um, it was the road that would enable me to be able to get up in the morning when I like. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was, it was actually, you know, there were, so I spent, so I, I kind of did my fine art course and, and I always realized at art school that, that I politically, I didn't feel like I fitted, fitted in with the, with the fine art world. Mm. I was much more into um, what would have been, deemed street art back then yeah but but not in a street art kind of way i was in newcastle i was i'll, I'll, I'll explain where i'm going in a minute because like, <laughs> go on you crack on but, but there were paintings on walls that's not what i was doing even though i could do all that i was going into scrapyards in newcastle and oh, yeah. and getting them to pile up the cars for me because back then in the 90s in newcastle you could do anything i'd get them to pile up the cars and, and jump up there and paint paint all the cars like a nice. giant painting on there I and health and safety hadn't quite shown its head yet had it <laughs> you could literally walk into those machines were going uh, yeah although picking up whatever you were in amongst it it didn't matter and i was going into all the derelict buildings and and painting all this shit in there and nice. photographing myself with them and this felt like art to me but you i couldn't sell it you know I tried doing some shows and no one really understood what I was doing. And I did feel, I'm not going to say ahead of my time, but but I was doing installation pieces. I did, I did a show in Edinburgh. So I was doing quite a lot of shows up North. Yeah. But I just couldn't work out where I sat because everyone else seemed to be showing paintings on walls. And I was showing these kind of installations that you walked in. I did this one installation called Grey Britain in, in Newcastle, in Edinburgh, where I filled a room. I tried to fill a room with water <laughs> and, and it, it didn't work. It fucking No, really? <laughs> but I thought I could get like, you know, basically I hadn't worked it out at all. And then um, it started leaking and I had to suddenly bucket out this water and I got delivered a quarter of a ton of coal. Yeah. And uh, which I felt was more poignant anyway, filled the room with coal, this low level coal, and then made these kind of Chesterfield upholstered steps that led up to this throne that was like an exploding 
this it said boom across the back with a grey painting of the United um, the British flag behind Excellent. it. And then on the walls, I had car bonnets, and on it, I'd airbrushed um, bodybuilders, like naked bodybuilders. And back in, right now, I swear to God, now you'd be looking at that and go, oh yeah, cool, yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, back yeah. then, people were like, what the <laughs> fuck are you on? Like, yeah. you know, really, it was, it felt like I was following this kind of path because my degree show had been called um, Quest for the Perfect Body. Nice. And it was all about cars and it was all about, but, but equating it to evolution of man and had all these kind of, like I said, these extreme bodybuilders on car bonnets and stuff. And then, which led to a show at the um, uh, Museum of Science and Engineering in Newcastle. Oh, wow. A big dance festival there. I was only, I was literally like 22 and they nice. gave me like 10,000 quid or something to do, which is like, what the hell? And basically I took over big chunks of the Museum of Science and Engineering and, and wow. this show called Carmageddon. And it was just <laughs> every, every aspect of cars that were to do with it. The main thing was about twocking. So, um, you know, it was all about car thieves and, yeah. and, and I'll send you some pictures. It, it, it's hard to explain really, but um, yeah. So I've, alongside being an artist, I've been a musician all my life. Yeah. And, um, you know, went from the, through the usual bands and all kinds of stuff, you know, back in the nineties and loved it. But I suppose always thought it was a pipe dream, you know, ne never could get anything off the ground in terms of with the record labels and yeah. all that kind of thing. And then um, in the 90, late 90s or mid 90s, I, I started another band and we got signed. We got signed to Chrysalis and that was all oh, great nice. stuff. But, that, but, it, but it turned into a clusterfuck as it does with many bands. And I was sitting there and in the 90s, I, was, I, was, I spent 10 years as a commercial artist. So, so like painting murals, doing restaurants in London, doing yeah. loads of all the Garfunkel's restaurants, all those, but back in the, do you remember everything was scumble glaze. Everything was fucking, you know, awful kind of cheesy stuff. And I, I, I'm probably the one who was <laughs> responsible. Mr. Scumble. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but then got a job at the National Theatre doing props uh, nice. uh, there and scenic artist and uh, I did uh, and then I met this guy and we were painting the English National Opera and I was doing you know really interesting stuff. Yeah. But I could see a limit to it. I was just like, this isn't me. This is this is you know. It's a job. Yeah. It's, it felt like a job, and um, it's learning skills. But the whole time I was doing music and I was like. I want to do music. There's no upper limit to how much I can earn as a musician. Yeah. Whereas as an artist, all I could see was 150 quid a day, which was yeah. great, but that was it. Yeah. As a musician, I was like, there is millions and millions and millions of pounds out there that I'm not having. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, potentially and, could have my name on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and so I just started um, learning, teaching myself to, and I'd been teaching myself anyway to record and to produce music. And the don't ask, don't get thing came from, I remember I read, um, I was really depressed, man. I was like, I was in my thirties or get, no, coming up to 30. I'd done all kinds of bloody crazy shit, but I didn't feel like I had a career or a life or a, you know, it just felt yeah. like where the fuck's all this going? You know, I've got all this talent and all this skill and I've always been talented actually, you know, but almost too talented in too many different ways. That sounds yeah, really yeah, arrogant, yeah. but it's true. I couldn't decide which way I wanted to go. 
and I just read uh, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. I think it was like one of the kind of those early self-help books, you know, and oh, yeah. um, it, one of the things it said in it was do something that frightens you every day. Yeah. And I realized the thing that frightened me the most was, it's like you were saying with your letters, was just getting on the phone and just phoning. And so I decided to phone one person every day that might be able to help me, you know, get into the music industry. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. I don't know how long it took, but I was phoning people. I got one, I, and then I, I, you know, I got my first job and and my first proper job. And this was bonkers. And I thought, oh, here we are. We're, we're going, we're rocking. Yeah. I was doing a Coca-Cola advert, right? Doing some music for it. And coming back to the copying, like I'm really, really good at copying music as well. Yeah. So I wrote a tune. This is a bonkers story. I wrote a tune that sounded like Can't Explain by The Who. Okay. And it just came through the record company that the, the publishers that had um, signed my previous band. They were like offered me this this opportunity, and uh, and then they were like, "We can't use this. It's too close to the Who. It, it just sounds too much <laughs> like the Who." Yeah. And then, but they really wanted it. It was in Germany, and they were like, "Really wanted it. It was one hundred and sixty thousand euros," and I was or, or whatever it was, and I was just like, "Oh my <clears> god!" The stress of it was massive. Yeah. Yeah. They were like. We really, really want it, blah, blah, blah. But we couldn't use it because the Who are really litigious. They'll fucking sue us because, yeah. you know, they'll hear this. They're tune. the Who, yeah. They're, they're the Who. <laughs> but they do sue everyone. They're known for it. Got you. Pete Townsend was having a really bad time at the time, I think, with the whole kind of uh, paedophilia thing and all, mm. all that malarkey. They phoned him and was like, if you take half of the publishing on this music, will you let us use it for um for wow. this Coca-Cola advert and he said yes nice that was my first gig and on on prs where nice. all the songs i've written it says lee baker pete townsend oh wow. and that, with this tune which yeah. is funny anyway that's I, worth 80 grand on its own yeah. isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it didn't come down to 80 grand i can yeah. see oh of course whittled down to fuck all anyway I was sitting there going, this is I it. bet you was praying he got a not guilty on that paedophile thing, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shit, can you imagine? Um, and uh, I thought, that's it. I'm in. I mean, you know, it's like, you don't ask, you don't get, this is it. I'm stuck. I didn't work again for like, two years nice. or something. I didn't get another job for, I didn't get another music job for two years. And I've been, I worked really, really hard. And over the years, I've just built up a music career. And uh, now I'd say the majority of my money comes from music and Excellent. I spend it all making art. Excellent. And that, that's Excellent. the truth. That is literally the reason why I can do what I do is because I make music for a living and I, and it's rolling income as well. So any, nice. whenever anything of mine gets played on television, it just rolls in. Oh, is that what you do? You make music for adverts and that sort of thing or yeah I make music for tv i mean honestly man i've written music for some of the cheesiest shit you've ever but, but what does it matter what no 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 it doesn't and i've written some really great stuff as well but i've and that's I part of being band. a commercial musician isn't it exactly exactly and i, I you know i i've i've worked i've produced um i've produced loads of bands as well i've kind of worked with a band called james um who, wow okay yeah, and Tim, Tim Booth, I wrote a couple of solo albums with Tim and then went on to produce music for James as well. Oh, wow. He's, he's, a, good, he's, a, he's a good friend now. He's, he's like, you know, I haven't, I haven't made any music for him for a little while. We, I think he got to a point where I was like, actually, can we just be friends? I, I, you know, that sounded funny, didn't it? <laughs> um, 
Uh, work it's not Dan. you, it's me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But he, he was in, he, he was interesting. We've really got a bond over the years, you know, nice. and, and I worked with bands loads, but I found that my ego was big enough as it is. And when you've got a band, you're dealing with so many egos in a room. I actually prefer working on my own. Yeah. You know, I much prefer just being in a room it's not on my own. Thing. No, 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 totally. I, you you got to know who you are and what makes you happy. And also, if you're on a if you're on a fucking track that's working, outside influences might push you off of that track, or it might push you in a good direction. But yeah. more often than not, it sort of knocks you a bit off of kilter, doesn't it? Well, I think also, I think my insecurities kick in when other people are in the room. When I'm on my own, I'm the king. I'm the king of my own castle, of course, and yeah. and and I, I can just I can run with it, and I'm very. One thing I've learned how to do is just make decisions. Yeah. Very fast at making decisions. I don't like second guessing myself. I just like making in art and music. I just like diving in because working in the commercial world for so long, deadlines were so tight and they are, they're so quick. Sometimes there's someone will need a piece of music by tomorrow, you know, so you've yeah. got to be so fast that I think that's enabled me creatively to be. To make uh, the right decision quickly. Yeah. Yeah, and often, you know, you learn, don't you, that your your first uh, kind of instinct is often don't second guess. You know, I've worked with quite a few people over the years who would second guess over and over and over. Yeah. It drives me crazy. Absolutely drives me crazy. So well, do you anyway. think it's that, that train of thought that has pushed you on to um, working in so many different directions in the art world? Because you definitely don't work with what's in front of you. You work with big projects in, in several different areas as well when I sit down in front of a piece of music or a piece of art, I go into a kind of zone, which, you know, it's like, it really is like myopic. It's like, you know, I'm sure I'm on the spectrum somewhere. <laughs> yeah. When I go into that zone, there's, there's no getting me out of it, you know? And, and I think that's something why that's why I got so passionate about Japanese art over the years and Japanese culture is because I saw so much of myself in the precision and the, and the focus yeah. of that, of that work. And I've tried to kind of emulate that in some, in some way, the projects being big. It's like, if I walked into an exhibition, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real like fan of paintings. I really am. How do I explain this? It's like, Great painting to me is almost like an installation. You're immersed, you immerse in it. Paintings keep flashing into my head, but the one exhibition that blew my mind and actually changed my life was when I turned 40, was turning 40, I, before this, you know, the artist uh, um, Takashi Murakami, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw a lecture that he gave back in early 2000s. There was an exhibition he did at Serpentine. I went to this exhibition and it, it, it embodied so much that I loved. Nice. It embodied cartoons, embodied manga. You know, 1989, Akira came out. And like I remember, didn't even know what Akira was. And I was coming down off a magic mushroom trip and <laughs> sat, sat down at the telly, watched Akira, and I was just like... It completely blew my mind. Yeah, yeah. But then Takashi Murakami in this lecture was referencing Akira. 
and he was going through this lecture and I was, you know, fascinated by him, this Brilliant. absolute hero as far as I was concerned. And then I bought his book and, uh, and bearing in mind, I'm jumping around here. When I was at university, I did my dissertation on Robert Rauschenberg. And to me, that whole pop art, Takashi Murakami was really, really the Andy Warhol of Japan. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I was massively into that whole pop art scene anyway, but more from a kind of abstract expressionist angle rather than the Andy Warhol end. Yeah. But Takashi Murakami, as far as I was concerned, embodied that, but with the precision of Japan, you know. And he wrote, he had this book, and in this book, he talked about, and in this lecture, he talked about an artist called Ito Jakchu. Okay. Well, if you're English, you'd read it as Ito Jakuchu, but in Japanese it's pronounced Ito Jakchu. And these paintings, he, he, he showed a couple of images from a series of paintings that he did called the Colourful Realm of Living Beings. And I can't tell you what it did to me. It was like some bolt of lightning, you know, after years and years and years of studying art and being into Japanese art, but being into manga and anime and cartoons and pop art and, and Renaissance art and, you know, this world these paintings came along where I was like, what the fuck is this? Nice. You know, I get goosebumps talking about it because I can't explain what it did to me. When I read his story, he was an outsider artist in Japan. He drew for years, but off his own back, you know, yeah, yeah. he befriended a Buddhist monk called Daiten and they became very, very good friends. And he dedicated a good chunk of his life to producing a series of paintings called The Colourful Realm of Living Beings for the monastery. And these paintings, I mean, talk about representing nature. There's 24 of them, I think. There's including one of Buddha and two phoenixes, but the rest are just nature. They're, they're cockerels together. There are fish, there are nice. chrysanthemums. And these paintings, Anyway, when I was 40, I was planning to go to Japan as a present to myself. I'd never been and, you know, and um, it turned out I was going to go in April the next year. But it said that in October or November, which was when my birthday was, they were showing for the first time in something like 25 years, the colourful realm of living beings. Oh, nice. Tokyo Museum. I went to Japan amazing you know as you can imagine yeah kind of thing mind-blowing and then went to this exhibition and I had an experience in there that and it, it's weird it, it it affects me even talking about it yeah no I understand I broke down I feel like I had a breakdown you know I couldn't stop crying and I'm, I'm yeah. welling up talking about it nice and my, my wife at the time, she was like, what the fuck, you know, kind of thing was consoling me or whatever was going on. Anyway, we had to leave. We had to leave the show. And I came back the next day and was was fine. I gave a talk about this uh, a couple of years ago and I started crying in the lecture. Excellent. And everyone was like, again, what the fuck? Because <laughs> I think... Medic. I, yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> I reckon it. I reckon it. Kind of. I think it was the beginnings of my like midlife thing yeah, and yeah. nervous breakdown because this guy left his life. He gave up everything. I ended up finding his grave in Kyoto. Wow. 
I found on Wikipedia there was a I found out where he was buried. On Wikipedia there was a photo of his grave. I couldn't read Japanese. I went and searched around the nice. graveyard until I found the photo of this yeah, graveyard. Yeah. And I picked leaves up off his thing and I've still got them actually. Wow. I used to put them in my paint. Oh wow. Sprinkle them in my paint. And um and through him I had this kind of discovery and connection of Japanese art and it stayed with me really you know and I can't explain what that connection is I've, I've you know I've, I've spent years trying to learn Japanese I've, you know I'm absolutely rubbish at it I've been to Japan about five times you know and these and I used to kind of plagiarize Japanese art like as I'm good at copying and the flower but the flowers kept popping up and I was really struggling with it because I was like but they're just flowers yeah like why are you just painting flowers? There's all this conceptual world out there for you. And why do you keep just painting flowers? You know, it's really lame. It felt lame. Yeah, it felt really yeah. obvious and lame. And then over the years, I think as I've got older and some part of me settled down inside, I've realized there's a majesty in just painting the flowers. Yeah. And then I started kind of putting them onto walls and things, you know, but then stopped and thought, oh, I don't want to be a bloody urban artist, you know, painting walls. Every fucker's a street artist, you know, <laughs> didn't, want to, didn't want to do it. But then we started doing these bigger and bigger projects. I was designing for Catherine's company, Produce UK. I was doing more and more. And then we were like, then we started Skip Gallery, you know, and I mean, obviously Catherine's talked to you loads about Skip Gallery. And, in a funny kind of way, I think, you know, Skip Gallery is much more Catherine's baby. And I had to really embrace conceptualism in order to get into, I'm much more about aesthetics, much yeah. more about kind of color and aesthetics in that world. And I do love conceptual artists or, you know, mostly artists that bridge the gap between visualism and concept conceptualism. Yeah. Anselm Kiefer, I think is probably a good example of that. I think since Skip Gallery, I've really kind of had to and learned to embrace conceptualism far more. Well, you know? I'm I'm all for the accessibility into the art world. But when I first saw the Skip Gallery, it was when you had Richard Woods's house on the tilt as if it had just been dumped in there. I saw it and I was like, I'd love to see more art in Skips. And then obviously... As soon as I sort of turned the page, I saw that there was, and I just hadn't seen it. Beautiful well, I thing. Think, I think the, the, the uh, thank you. Yeah, it, it, I think what was great about Richard was that we both loved his work. We'd been to um, see his work. Both me and Catherine were like, God, his work's amazing. And the thing I've brought to Skip Gallery is I'm not like you. I'm not frightened of getting in contact with artists. Yeah. And what's great about Skip is it enables us to be able to communicate because there's something really funny, witty, um, um, prohibited um, about Skip. And we're not trying to sell anything. We're not commercial. And I think that comes across with us. We're not some kind of leeching gallery trying to make money. Yeah. You know, um, Maybe it'd be nice sometimes. <laughs> well, Skip Gallery is one of those things where when I realised what it was, it was one of those where I was like, why the fuck didn't I think of that? <laughs> it's one of those simple ideas that just hold so much water. It's beautiful. So I think it's been a real journey for us 
And all this time, I've kept the flower paintings, graphic rewilding in the background, very much in the background because I couldn't see a way of marrying, or maybe I just didn't even think about it because I was just like, these two are so, these things are so different. It's so ridiculous. How are people going to marry up the people that brought you Skip Gallery, brought you graphic rewilding? <laughs> it just didn't, it didn't, it felt weird. But then we started doing these more, yeah, as I said, more colourful, more um, garish um, exhibitions as uh, design, uh, commercial designs as Baker and Borowski. And what had happened was I kind of got mass, you know, did a whole thing with Japanese culture and the paintings, whatever. And then the, the, the flowers and, and that side of things of my life kind of went off the boil and focused on Skip and music. And, and it's all risen up again. Yeah. And it's been an amazing experience because I can't tell you the response the flowers have had. Nice. They're beautiful. I mean, you mentioned earlier about your first installation being in an old warehouse, and then you just recently mentioned the chrysanthemum, and then that just brings them two elements into the graphic rewilding that you've just done, putting yeah. the, the huge chrysanthemum on the um, deserted yeah. factory window or warehouse yeah. window. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. And that, it, it, literally, you, you've hit the nail on the head. It's come totally full circle. If It's literally come back round. Yeah. And what I love about that was, is that I've spent my life thinking, Jesus Christ, I'm just this fucking mercurial, ridiculous person who just jumps and jumps and jumps. But it's not true. There was a narrative there the whole yeah. time, you know? And I think the narrative for me, coming back to your first question in a way, is that always been about art in public spaces, art in unusual spaces that are that are accessible or interesting you know i love a museum as much as the next person but i want i love to see art out in the public realm yeah. you know it's um, and this present time is the perfect time for art to be outside because a lot of the time we we restricted to going inside you know yeah. you may have to queue you may have to book and why not go and visit are on your way to a gallery or on your way to to the shops you know if it's if it's there shop windows yeah perfect i think there's there's an interesting discussion there isn't there there's a there's an interesting debate on one hand it's like the trouble with that is that really so often the only art that ends up in those spaces are art is art that is um is photographed photographable yeah. Yeah. that what gets pushed aside i think is the conceptual in favor of the visual and i think brilliant artists like rauschenberg actually were able to are able to marry the two richard woods is a very very good example yeah but that said i think um con conceptual art or or yeah thinking art seems to have been pushed back and pushed back in a in a way it's a shame because it will remain feels like it will remain in an elitist world yeah and it will remain in a world where people can't will never get to grips with it unless they either have an education or money well that in mind Lee, exactly what you're just saying there i'm at the fulham town hall i'm one of the artists who's there at the moment oh yeah i saw your piece it was right right so one side of me i've got dot master in the other side of me, I've got Luap, both massively visual. They are yeah. Instagram's dream. You know, yeah. big pink teddy bear in a big pink room with a pink bike. Everyone's next to it. 
um, Doc Master doing his, you know, the Doc Master yeah. wallpaper type thing. Yeah. Mine between them is conceptual, but so much so that I, I, this is the first time I've ever put a bit of context, written context next to it, because I, I'm well aware I'm in, I'm in a world here now where it's, they're not coming to look at conceptual art. So I've had to put a bit of context next to mine. And mine's very personal and no one's got the time. But I stood there watching people going past these three rooms and people stop. They have a look in the little hatch that I've made, take a photo of it and go. People just want the, the now at this exhibition at least. And um, it hurt a little bit at first because I thought, oh, it's so personal. Just take the time to have a look. But people just didn't have the time. You know, well, there's there's several things going on there, isn't there? Oh, I'm well aware of all of them. Yeah. I'm just it just so happens I'm in the wrong place. I'm in a place with all graffiti artists. Yeah. So you're yeah. In, are you in the basement? I am. I said I was in with the riffraff, which they wasn't too keen on. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We we um we went down and talked to them about doing a piece. Um, I, yeah, I was aware at the time I got involved. You were just seeing if you were going to be in it or not with your piece, you know. And I, I looked at it, you know, and obviously on it was on Instagram. Yeah, there's so much going on there, isn't it? I really understand your the way you feel. I really do. It's so so often it's that duality between making a work piece of work for yourself, and then the work as performance, the yeah. work as in, in the public realm, and that is why. I think so much art now, and I think Instagram's got a lot to answer for in that respect. Art, in many ways, has become um, just a medium for people to stand in, yeah. Um, rather than you know, rather than something to learn from, you know. And maybe it's an age thing. I, I have no idea why, but I love art in its entirety. And I think art has become now, it's like what, what is 5% of the art world, 3% of the art world has become 95%. Yeah, of the art world. yeah. Well, that's what we were saying about the, the like me saying Luap one side and Dot Masters the other. Yeah. Although I was getting a little bit pissed off with it, I had, um, there was a couple of women looked through, and one of them had looked through, while the second one was looking through, the first one was reading the bit of, con uh, the bit of text. And then she's just gone like that, got her mate and pointed to it. And they're both reading it. And then one of them's brought a, a tissue out and started wiping her eye. Then the other one's looked around at her. She's laughed because her mate's crying, but then she started crying. And then they're both looking through. And then I've, I've, I've pulled them as they come out, you know, and I, I just sort of like struck up a conversation. And it turns out that one of her dad, um, one of them, their dad passed of leukemia. So, it was that sort of straightaway connection that it was no longer my son that she was looking at. It was her dad that she was looking at, you know, yeah. all of a sudden it didn't bother me that people were just coming, taking a photo and leaving mm. them two people. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but no, not at all. It, not know? at all. I think, I, I think those kind of moments are really worth it because I think the metric by which we determine the success of a piece of art has been distorted. Yeah. And Actually, you're right. It does sound like a cliche when it comes out of your mouth. I, if I can affect just one person, yeah, yeah, you know, kind of thing. But there's meaning in that, yeah, and because 
art is about communication, is about connecting with human beings, other human beings. Would art exist if, if other human beings didn't exist? You know, yeah. it's a whole, there's a whole dialogue there. But art has become associated with success, whatever that means. Yeah. Financial success. When you look at artists like Beeple, you know, looking, yeah, yeah. selling something for six, everything, because we're fascinated by success and um, celebrity. And so, you know, I, me and Catherine 100% agree that Banksy is, he's up there for me, you know, with, with, with the masters, but it also at the same time, he's also, um, uh, perpetuated the idea of of this artist as celebrity, which has always existed. Yeah. You know, yeah. Rubens was a celebrity. Caravaggio was a celebrity in his day, but somehow it's reached absolute epic proportions. Just when you think things are this way, then human beings have a capacity to change. Change it, yeah. There's always greatness for all of us, you know. And, and, and art is so subjective, you know. Yeah. It, not so subjective it is subjective there's no there's no in between is there no definitely not um i'm aware that skip gallery have just sort of um become a part of the kensington and chelsea art week yes and it's within a couple of days of us talking that it's been signed off so yeah graphic rewilding it's always hard to describe yeah so skip gallery skip gallery is graphic rewilding we're all the same thing baker and broski Basically. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But they were taken in by uh, graphic rewilding, and we're just in the middle of working out a area in Earl's Court, um, just chatting loads to Vestalia and um, Rebecca at um, Kenston and Chelsea Art Week. They've been brilliant, and you know, really, it's really exciting. Really and do exciting. you know what it is you're doing yet? So it's along the lines of kind of flower power and kind of more psychedelia that nice. environment yeah to have uh, an element of that route i wanted to be inspired more by the um uh, victorian play uh, the victorian but the, the, the i think there was georgian were they the, the pleasure gardens of yeah. The area. yeah and i've been quite fascinated lately with those kind of flowers that would have been used in those gardens so things like red hot pokers uh chrysanthemum dahlias those kind of really like blousy blousy poppies that kind of world and try and imbue the, the where the kind of uh, the, the flower power element would come in or the psychedelic would come in was just imbue it with so much bloody color yeah. it's just bursting out and and so we're we're working on a 33 meter hoarding down wow. there which is on the they've knocked down Earl's Court the the exhibition center yeah and we're working on a hoarding and hopefully like a, a 3D kind of a 3D area in front of it as well. We're just working on those designs at the moment and really enjoying it. We did something that was 25 meters um, recently, but there was repetition. Yeah. This, I want it to feel as though it's just like changing all the yeah, way along. Yeah. And I love this idea of, how do I put it? It's like representing nature in such a way that it's overpowering. Yeah. His work, it's obviously not nature. It's his 
it's like nature meets his imagination. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And he's decontextualized nature. And so there's a sense of abstraction in there. It's not like you'd look at my designs and go, ooh, that's an abstract. <laughs> yeah. At all. But the thought that goes into it is of abstracting, taking those shapes. And also, I don't like, I, I'm not interested in flowers used as textile design. So my designs go from the bottom upwards. They, they work from the bottom upwards. They function as a scene rather than, oh, here are some flowers that are dotted, dotted yeah, around. Yeah. And so I've tried to kind of have that as much as possible. And I found it really enjoyable, man. Apart from the fact that my computer nice. can't handle the bloody drawing. <laughs> it's so complex. I mean, there's literally so thousands and thousands of lines in there. The computer, yeah. And it's a fast computer and it's just like, no. <laughs> not having it. No, not having it. So I've, 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 got to, I've got to buy something better in order to bloody handle the drawings I'm doing at the moment. I always found kind of um, the fauvism just really exciting. And I can imagine I put myself in their world when they were painting yeah. at the turn of the century and how radical that must have been. Yeah. Whereabouts in Hills Court will people be able to see your if um, you've got, installation? I think if you, when you get out the back of Hills Court Station, so it, it's the exit that used to lead to the exhibition centre. Yeah. The exhibition centre is now gone. And they're doing underbelly, I think, have taken over yeah. there. And um, so it's like it's like just some, you know, some hoardings in the area in front. Um, it's not totally, but we're still in the middle of designing it at the moment. And um, yeah, so I, I really, at the moment, I pro proposed a kind of, it's like a psychedelic Victorian gateway. So imagine nice. like the hoardings. Yeah. Um, I was looking in Crem, uh, the research in Cremorne Gardens and um, and the uh, there's there were, there were always the Victorian gates. What I think is interesting about those Victorian gates is everything else is gone, but they've kept the gates. <laughs> so it's kind of abstract, yeah. weird, you know. It's been planted there. Yeah, it just looks like it's dropped out of space. So yeah. um, I, I, you know, um, I've, so I've kind of proposed a bit of an idea where this gate is sitting in front of the hoardings and in a way it, it leads to nowhere and doesn't make any sense yeah, whatsoever. Yeah. So, you know, so yeah, we're just, we're just busy, busy working on that. Um, lots of interesting skip gallery uh, things in the offing as well. There's um, some interesting uh, projects and we've got, we've got a, a show. I'm not sure if Catherine told you, but um, we've been busy curating a show in Mykonos, um, that was just coming together when I spoke to her. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, so um, that's definitely come together now. Nice. Shrigley's put in more work, which is great. Oh, wow. J Jeremy Della's uh, uh, Flying Leaps posters are in it. Just chatting. Oh, man, about I love Jeremy Della. I emailed him about his Strong and Stable My Arse yeah. posters and... Luckily, because he was doing that with flying leaps, um, it yeah, meant cool, like, he just gave me he just gave me um, AIDS uh, email and and kind of it was great because now I've just dealt with him instead. Yeah. So so that was good. Uh, Gavin Turk might might put something in. Dion Kitson, I don't know if you know his work. He's no. done something brilliant. I'll, I'll make well if I see it. He, he's he's great. If you see him on Instagram, he's he's absolutely hilarious. Very conceptual, um, very uh, witty. Um, Sarah Maple. 
Man, Sarah Maple's one. I, I mean, I love Sarah Maple anyway. Yeah. Um, but Sarah Maple's one, when I saw it, I was like, brilliant. Oh, Just fucking simple. A sign in a skip, done. Yeah. And do you know what, actually? we uh, Catherine probably told you, but we, we originally proposed that to go in Selfridges. Yeah. Selfridges were like, oh, it's too political. It's too whatever. Can you change it this, blah, blah, blah. And we were going to change it. And they, and they said no. And, and then we ended up doing it. And then they came back and went, oh, could we have that in our... <laughs> like, huh? Although yeah. the one that was in, in Selfridges I had the tree coming out, didn't it? Oh yeah, that that was a uh, that was that that wasn't in Selfridges. I oh, wasn't that it. Was, Beautiful uh, that, that was. That was uh, one of my fantastic Photoshop jobs. The tree skip idea, and it's an idea we had um, uh, a little while ago, which hasn't been done yet. Is we wanted to create a skip that you could take apart, and it would just look like a skip, you know. But we'd go around and build the skip around trees yeah and then photograph trees in a skip because you know it, it was just it just as a bit of a kind of nice visual idea um you know that kind of magritte kind of you know juxtaposition yeah. thing well also, when you go into a garden center lee they'll have some rusty old barrel with beautiful color flowers falling yeah. out of it it's exactly the same yeah. Um, juxtaposition between beauty and degradation, if that's the exactly. word. After speaking to Catherine about the skip gallery, a while later I was looking at a project to do with the size of a prison cell. And it was something that had been in my mind since I was in a prison cell. I, I looked for the, the smallest size a cell has to be for one man. Yeah. Prison authorities are now putting two people in one of those cells, you know, that was designed for wow. one person. Wow. Um, because they're overcrowded. So I thought, well, if I get the cubic meterage of that cell and then divide it in half, how big is it? That's when I thought, and it was a little while after speaking to Catherine, I was like, fucking hell, that ain't much bigger than a skip. Wow. And this has got a man in it. Do you know what I mean? We should, we should, we should talk about doing that. We should do, There's make, something there, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I love that. I reckon Catherine would quite like that. Yeah, but it's just making the viewer's eye look at what they're viewing in a different yeah. A yeah. different way this is not a pipe yeah exactly you know i think uh this yeah, is not um, a skip yeah this is not a skip <laughs> this is not a skip a prison cell <laughs> exactly wow man yeah that's really interesting can you oh send me that if you get a chance send me the dimensions because I'd, I'd really be interested. i've got i mean i've got them in the sketchbook just well i was going to say just over there but that's where it was where i last saw it but um yeah i will do um so we've got a few things uh, going on at the moment. And it, it's been a weird year. I'm sure it's been a weird year for everyone. Um, I think we we hit a point where we were like, we were, you know, we were shelling out all our own money to, to do the skips and, you know, and, and all that. And then we were like, should we try and go for some funding? We, we were working with uh, Corkin, uh, this amazing architecture company um, who uh, we developed this idea with uh, Self Space, who uh, it was all about mental health. And we, they were going to design this nine meter monolith that you could walk inside, inside a skip, and there'd be a library of feelings inside nice. the skip. And it's all designed, it's all ready to go. And we were like, do you know what? For once, should we go for arts funding? You know, oh my God, what an absolute laborious process that is, you know. Yeah. And it's it really, sucks all the enjoyment out of a piece of art, doesn't it? Not just it? that. It's like artists are not bureaucrats. Yeah. Artists are not 
necessarily good at writing. And do you know what? I, I find it infuriating that I'm actually quite eloquent. You know, I can write and all that. I didn't get the funding. I didn't yeah. expect to. But I was like, my God, when, when did art become about box ticking? Yeah. When did art become, why can't someone just make a piece of art and it not have to be, you know, um, have to be for everybody da, 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 in the public space? Is it helping the community? Is yeah. it, you know, is it, why can't art just be art and get yeah. funded? But instead, this whole thing was like this entire justification yeah. for the artwork you're making. Yeah. Do you know what? Sod off. I don't want to have to justify anything. Me and Catherine don't want to have to justify anything to anybody. Yeah. I'd rather just pay for it myself. Well, I put on an exhibition each year up until 2020 called Face Value. I was like borrowing like three or four grand just to get it off the ground. So then I looked at going for funding. And yeah, like you say, it's laborious, all the box ticking talking about big baker and Borowski, you know the, the i feel like i feel like catherine will listen back and go he hasn't mentioned us at all well, i think our creative journey together has been easily the most fascinating interesting and successful um of either of our artistic careers yeah you know nice. <laughs> like she, she's you know highly kind of uh conceptually in her thinking i think it was on euston road there's a basement of a church they used to have okay. um, then she had um that's the first time i saw her spindles leaning up against a wall and there were 10 of them you know and and she was explaining obviously where it came from and she's explained to you about her whole upbringing and yeah. where where these spindles represented you know kind of something magical to her because her living environment was so plain and you know nothing and she's explaining this to me and I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, I'm out of my depth here. This is like, this is another level, you know? And all I could think in my head was, can't she make those spindles at least pink or something? <laughs> you know? as, as, as time's gone on, I think we've, we've kind of met in the middle. And I think well, that's the ideal thing with, sorry to interrupt. No, that, right. But that's the idea of thing with the pair of you because you've got you on the left, her on the right, and you've built something in the middle. Yeah. And yeah, it's beautiful. And without sort of blowing smoke up your ass, when I spoke to Catherine and she was telling me about how yous work together and individually, I found it quite inspiring. Get these, possibly get a designer in to design something, get someone in to, to run that. Yeah, and, and I totally understand that. I totally understand that. I think before Catherine, there were so many projects. What was I was finding was I'd spent spending a lot of my time feeling frustrated. Yeah. And my brain was able to come up with things that she was able to put into action. She's amazing at getting shit done. Honestly, she'd always be like, I don't do anything or, you know, I'm not as kind of, you know, because she doesn't paint, draw, do all those um, uh, traditional arts because yeah. she's a thinker or, you know, she doesn't think of herself as an artist as such. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, what the fuck, man? It's like, when you think about what we've achieved together, yeah, brilliant. it doesn't matter who's bringing what to the party. I can only do what I do. What yeah, I do- It's a great party. It doesn't matter what, who's brought exactly, what to it, yeah. Exactly. I have always sat there, made stuff. If I can't make something, then I feel useless, you yeah. know? Catherine makes shit happen. When my dad died, 
when when my dad died, she stepped up to the plate and organized the funeral within about two days. My mum was devastated. Yeah. Couldn't do anything. And Catherine, when her back's up against the wall, she just gets shit done. Nice. When her mum died, when she decided to do, you know, this skip, you know, and beautiful, whatever. What she managed to put together, and we did it, you know, we did it together, but really it was so much of it was her impetus. Yeah. She's amazing at, at making stuff happen, you know, and, and I think she underestimates, massively underestimates what that brings to the party. You know, there's this seems to be that, that yeah, like I say, because, because I'm often the one putting pen to paper, she, she devalues her contribution, which is ridiculous. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and individually it wouldn't work anyway. No, no, it wouldn't. And, yeah. and both of both of us individually were doing stuff, but we weren't getting shit off the ground like we yeah. are now. Good. If there was you and five other artists, past and present, what would your ideal group show be? Oh my god, Jesus Christ! It's funny, isn't it? I'm sure everyone says that mind goes blank, but Ito Jachu is at the absolute top of the list. Brilliant. Um, Bellini is there. Lee Irfan. So he's a Korean artist in, in Japan. I don't know if you know his work. I don't. I'd say the architect, uh, Tadao Ando. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, my mind's just gone to Japanese people but like you know ribera so so ribera is up there for me um yeah and velasquez oh wow that's uh yeah. that's so be like i'd have two that's it i'd have two rooms or i'd mix and match them <laughs> i'd have i'd have i'd have like the best of eastern art and i'd have the best of western art excellent so on this side it would be ribera Velasquez and Bellini, and on this side it would be Leo Fan, um, uh, Ito Jachu, and Tadao Ando. And where would you be? I'd be right, right, smack <laughs> bang in the middle. <laughs> I had noticed that the pandemic sort of didn't really get in the way of of you and Catherine. <laughs> um, <laughs> too too much it didn't look like that anyway i never went out before anyway like i said so there's the bums show in mykonos which is really exciting like you know hard work putting it together but also you know it's exciting it's, it's lovely to see that you know the original idea for that was to be in her front room and oh, uh, wow yeah and because uh, we were quite inspired by jeremy della's you know bedroom show yeah yeah i thought the idea of she's got she's got a uh, painting um of a bum by uh, celia hempton um and uh, we wanted to build the show around that basically brilliant and um anyway so that's that we've just been approached um as a possible again i'm not even sure uh, in fact i'm not going to say any names but a really big thing possibly happening um around freeze um wow not to do with freeze but but you know around the same time yeah. and that could be really exciting um possibility of having quite a few skips nice um, get some posh skips in <laughs> <laughs> i don't think there's going to be anything posh about this. it might be running running alongside freeze but uh 
I, yeah, I don't think quite got the budget <laughs> for each, put it that way. Um, like I said, the corking, corking architectural piece we've been trying to get off the ground for ages, that might happen. We're talking to um, a well-known venue in uh, Brick Lane um, nice. for that. Um, I'm bound to forget. And graphic, so graphic rewilding, there's quite a few things going on, actually. Excellent. We've had quite a few, um, if, you know, since we actually said it's graphic rewilding, you know, rather than Lee Baker paints flowers, it's yeah. Baker and Broski create these yeah. things. The response has been mental, man. We Where can people find what you and what you and Catherine are doing, be it social media or website? Ah, so um, on Instagram, Skip Gallery is a really good spot. Yeah. And, um, and, and then graphic rewilding. Yeah. So at graphic rewilding on Instagram. And, and then, you know, there's our own personal Instagrams, but uh, that will confuse things even more. There you go. All right then, mate. Thank you very much for your time. That's all my questions asked, Lee. Cheers, man. And um, yeah, thank you for your time. Good Lovely luck and I'll speak to you soon. All right, Angie. Bye. See you later on, man. Bye-bye. There you go, Lee Baker. He's a bit of a character, isn't he? And he seems to have had quite an exciting and fun-filled life, that's for sure. And if you haven't seen the work that Graphic Rewilding do, do yourself a favour and go and take a look. You get the same sense as you do looking at Orlando Bloom's work. They sort of draw you in and you can almost taste the colour. During this conversation, Lee and I went off on a tangent several times. I did cut them out because... um. You know, they were sort of like private conversations. But during one of them, Lee got a call from David Trigley, no less, because they're friends and working on a project together. And Lee was like, Whoa, Dave, I'm here with Gary from the Ministry of Arts. We're recording a podcast. First things first, mate, you're going to have to call me back. Or words along them lines, you know. Or it might have been, All right, mate, I'll call you back in a quarter of an hour. I'm just finishing up. Something like that. It's all a little bit hazy, you know. But anyway... Back to reality. As Lee mentioned there, Graphic Rewilding are doing a 30 metre long hoarding along the boundary of the old Earl's Court Exhibition Centre. I had seen a part of it just a couple of days after this recording and man, it looks stunning. And as we mentioned, it's part of the Kensington and Chelsea Art Week that runs from the 21st of June up until the 31st of July. And between now and the end of that festival, I'm going to be having at least three more great conversations with some of the featured artists, and all of whom are showing work that's outside, so there's no worries about social distancing. So as well as Graphic Rewilding and the Kensington and Chelsea Art Week, you can also go and look up Baker and Borofsky's Skip Gallery. That's also something really special. And like you heard on this episode, there's just a slight possibility that I might even be able to be included in one of them in the future. Fingers crossed, eh? But anyway, that's about it till next week. So, until then, ta-da! Hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. If you're unable to support us on Patreon, leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast, or even giving us a positive shout-out on your social media. Anything is appreciated. But either way, thanks for listening. And until next week, ta-da.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.